welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Loyalist of listeners, I have one final special episode for you before I take a break on them for a few months, lest they lose their speciality. But as you'll hear, I really didn't have a choice, because our law firm, Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, reached a final settlement agreement in our heavily litigated class action, Dong et al. v. Johnson, the case all about ICE's fake university, the University of Northern New Jersey. You'll hear all about that glorious institution in just a second. To help walk us through it, I had on KKTP associate Elizabeth Montano and KKTP partner Edward Ramos, names that longtime listeners may remember from their prior appearances on the show. Ed and Liz are so deep in UNNJ at the moment that I think they may have earned honorary degrees. Here's our great conversation from May 3rd, 2022. And take note, immigration attorneys, because this case involves like a thousand non-citizens, some of whom may be your current, past, or future clients. Important links in the show notes and on the KKTP website. Now, to Ed and Liz. Today is May 3rd, 2022, and the settlement was made official by the federal district court judge yesterday, May 2nd. In the case that is colloquially called the UNNJ case, or the University of Northern New Jersey, which, as you'll all find out, does not exist. To help me get through this is KKTV partner, the partner in Japan, Edward Ramos. Longtime listeners might remember Ed from our January 2021 talk about the Patel case, which as of the time of this talk is actually also still pending. So Ed, it's all coming full circle. Thanks for coming back on the podcast in the early morning in Japan. Absolutely, Kevin. Thanks for having me. And to help, Ed and I is also star KKTP associate, Elizabeth Montano, who some longtime listeners might also know from episodes 67, 68, and 69 of the podcast. 
She literally helped me have a honeymoon and I'm forever grateful for Liz. So thank you, Liz, for coming on and talking about UNNJ. She's back. (laughs) Yes, she is. Liz, true or false, you are traumatized from your time with the podcast because the Ninth Circuit literally published 18 decisions in three weeks. True or false? 100% true. 100% 100% true. Good. This is this is going to be a good direct. <laughs> and I just I just find it so amusing because up until last week, the Ninth Circuit had not published a decision for like six weeks. You got like 15 in three weeks. Well, there was one week where there was like six, right? The last my last week, there were six from the Ninth Circuit, six <laughs> and then three from other circuits that I can't remember now. But yeah, she's she's still bitter, everybody. <laughs> we're going to still convince her to get her on another week, though, when I. Dane to take a week off. You and Chris Rickard are going to tag team. So the University of Northern New Jersey, what the heck is UNNJ? Well, Kevin, uh, it was actually a, a, an operation planned under the Obama administration that targeted academic brokers um, in what, what the government calls pay-to-stay schemes. Um, and so the, basically the idea is that there are a lot of uh, students that come in on F-1 visas they attend school in the U.S. And, you know, as a lot of immigration attorneys will be very familiar with, uh, when they graduate from school, a lot of them are stuck because they've been here in the U.S. for a long time and they've completed their entire education here. And then if they don't get an H-1B visa or they can't find some other way to stay, a lot of students will look for a way to continue their education in the U.S. Um, And the F-1 regulations actually allow students to stay in the U.S. on what's called optional practical training. There's another form uh, of practical training called curricular practical training that's offered um, while someone is actually in an academic program. So there are some schools that will push the limits on that, um, and they will be more geared towards um, allowing students to stay in the U.S. on F1 status than actually providing a legitimate education. And the government doesn't like this. So they set up UNNJ as a way to try to target these brokers that kind of steer students uh, into these programs that the government views as not bona fide. Wait, hold on. Uh, let, me, let me just stop you there. So the U.S. government set up UNNJ. UNNJ is not a real school. Is that correct? Founded by DHS. <laughs> is there even a Northern New Jersey? Now, I know that's going to upset some <laughs> listeners, but I'm not. Is there, is there even a Northern New Jersey? It's just kind of I, all one Jersey. It's. I don't think it's big enough to. As a Philly person, I don't think it's big enough to justify. You know, different zones. Know. It's just New Jersey. It's that. It's that place over the bridge for me, anyway. <laughs> or certainly, <laughs> certainly not big enough to have an entire university. Or maybe it is. Yeah. Please don't hate me, everybody. <laughs> you will get hate for that. <laughs> I think we'll we'll also get hate though for the concept that a lot of these foreign students, um, or at least some of these universities, aren't doing it for the right reasons. It's, right. The vast majority of these universities are doing the right thing, that they are providing scholarship and educational opportunities to foreign students. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And, and, and it's, it is this small cater of, you know, universities that, and it's, it's not just uh, universities, it's also um, certain other types of, of technical schools and English language schools and whatnot. And it, the, the government uh, believes that there are these schools that, you know, try to abuse the system. And so that's what UNNJ was set up to try to target. Um, and the government claims that it really what they weren't going after the students. 
Well, they've actually, they've gone back and forth on that. I guess we can talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. We can. But, you know, they, they claim in their big press release when DOJ made the, the arrests of the brokers, um, they, they claim that the, the school was to target these brokers and not necessarily the students. But the operation certainly had a lot of negative effects on the, the over a thousand students who ended up enrolling in it. So, and a broker is essentially a middleman or a middlewoman connecting a student with a university that can give them scholarship in an ideal situation and help them stay at the U.S. at the same time, right? And they get paid to do that, and that's legal. But there are some unsavory brokers. Yeah, there was over a thousand uh, students who enrolled, and um, actually, the the broker point that you mentioned is important because it was uh, part of what made I think UNNJ, you know, so appealing is that in a lot of countries. Using academic brokers is is it's a it's a typical part of the post secondary process. You know, people don't don't kind of just go visit colleges by themselves. Like um, I think it's typical in the U.S. They they engage a broker. The broker gives them advice about where they should go, and you know they trust those brokers because they're supposed to be experts in in um, helping to find the right school for a person. So um, the whole scheme uh, was really set up to make UNNJ look extremely appealing to students that had graduated in the U.S. from, you know, undergraduate, um, because UNNJ built itself as the perfect place for students to, you know, go get their graduates uh, degrees. Well, that's pretty wild. Before we get to the, the lawsuit and, you know, our suing the U.S. government, Liz, can you tell me who who is Stephen Brunetti, PhD? Stephen Brunetti, PhD, is the infamous president or alleged purported president of UNNJ. Is Stephen Brunetti his real name? No. <laughs> Do we know his real name? No. <laughs> well, so so it might might be it might Stephen be his Brad, real name, right, just to be clear. <laughs> but I I don't believe it is. I think we've we've deduced enough. Uh, from investigation that it is not his real name, but we do not know his real name. He could really be a doctor. Mm. <laughs> he, he he was very attached to his PhD, uh, his his uh, his alleged PhD label. <laughs> and this this was the president of UNNJ, correct? That's who that's who he is, or it, or a robot, or she. Who I mean, potentially a, a very intelligent animal. Potentially. Potentially, this is an active fake president of a uni- of a university. Right. So he essentially he acted as the president of a real university. He had a, uh, you know, there was a UNNJ website and the website had a page that said, you know, office of the president. He had a social media accounts. He had I think he had Facebook and LinkedIn Mm -hmm. and Twitter, I think. He met with students. If the student if students went there, they could meet him. (laughs) <laughs> went where? There, there's a physical location for UNNJ. Yes, it was in like an office building in Cranford, New Jersey. Is uh, So I don't know where Cranford, New Jersey is for all the Third Circuit listeners. If that's not in northern New Jersey, perhaps we need to reopen the settlement agreement, bring another claim. So they would come to, <laughs> they'd come to this office building and someone would meet them? It, yeah, if somebody was there, there are um, several class members who have told us that they went there. They went there and they met with administration, quote unquote, administration or faculty or staff, however you want to call them. Um, there is at least one class member who actually met with 
Dr. Stephen Brunetti, PhD. And was a man, not a very smart animal. Yes, it was a man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, that class member got a picture taken with Mr. Or sorry, I'm sorry. Dr. Dr. Brunetti. Brunetti. <laughs> so sorry. Um, but had a picture with uh, Dr. Stephen Brunetti, PhD, got a t-shirt, a UNNJ t-shirt. Um, and I believe um, that the UNNJ Facebook posted this picture <laughs> on their on their account. There were ICE officers sitting in a strip mall in apparently northern New Jersey 20, uh, during the workday for years? Is, is that what you're saying? Because like a student could show up at any time. Well, first, I'm not sure it was a strip mall. I think it was more of like an office building. Depends on what you think of a strip mall. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but it was an office building and people worked there. But there was there were ICE officers posing as administrators. Correct. For years, yeah. just in case a foreign student showed up. Yep. That's that's our understanding. I don't know how often they were there and how how often they stayed there, whether they worked nine to five. I'm not sure. But there were people who occupied that office. (laughs) Wow. Well, to be to be fair, I'm not you know, I don't know for sure how many class members actually went to the building. But every time I've heard of a class member going to the building, there was someone there. There was somebody there. Yeah, they have. to. Okay, I love it. And, and this kind of ties back in, Kevin, to kind of all of the stuff that DHS did to try to make the school look legitimate. I mean, they, as Liz mentioned, they had a website, they had social media accounts, they would post about the weather, they would post about school closings, they would uh, do all kinds of... Uh, and the other big thing that they did was they got fake accreditations for the school. So you know, they basically got the, one of the largest uh, national accreditors of universities in the United States to give UNNJ accreditation. And they also went to the state of New Jersey and made sure that UNNJ was listed on, as a legitimate institution for purposes of New Jersey State. And probably most significantly, DHS itself certified UNNJ as one of the schools that's authorized to sponsor F-1 visas. So anyone who had any questions about UNNJ's, UNNJ's legitimacy could go on DHS's website, plug in UNNJ, and sure enough, they'd get a little message popping up saying, you're good to go. This is a legit school. It, it was really designed to make anyone who did any investigation through the normal channels to make it look like it, it was a legitimate institution. And of course, they paid tuition, which I guess went to the Department of Homeland Security. That's right. What was the yearly tuition to attend UNNJ? I don't remember offhand, but it was um, it was cheaper than uh, you know an Ivy League, but it was not pocket change either. It was <laughs> it was in the thousands at least, but it wasn't it wasn't like you know in the forty eight thousand dollar range or anything like that. But it it was in the between like maybe five thousand ish five thousand. I, I can't remember the exact number that people paid. And and, the, and what would happen is the brokers. This is where the brokers came in. The brokers would basically charge the tuition and then pay it to ICE, well, pay it to UNNJ, what they believed was UNNJ, and they would take a cut. And so this was, you know, a money-making operation for 
the brokers and for DHS because they kept the money. But the brokers are allowed to do that again, provided that it's a real university. I mean, they're allowed to take a cut or not. I don't know the, the rules on that. I, I, I would imagine that there should be at least some rule that the brokers need to be clear about what you know fees they're charging. Yeah. In this case, it was more just kind of, you need to pay us this much. And they, they said, we'll pay the tuition on your behalf. And so I, I don't think it was always clear to the students, you know, what percentage was supposed to be tuition or not, but. Gotcha. Sub question, is UNNJ tuition eligible for loan forgiveness? <laughs> whatever's happening at the Biden White House right now, a thousand foreign students want to know. So that's just one of many things I wanted to talk about with UNNJ. So I guess fast forwarding a bit, essentially, we bring this lawsuit. I'd like you guys to get into the specifics of the lawsuit just a bit, but we get dismissed in the district court. But then that's just where it starts. So what was this lawsuit about? And then what happened after the district court judge dismissed us? So in the school was shut down. DHS shut the school down April 5th, 2016. Um, and it became, you know, public news that UNNJ was a fake school and DHS ended up sending termination letters, CVS termination letters to all of the students who were enrolled in the school at the time. And the termination letters said something to the effect of your CVS record status has been sent to terminated based on your fraudulent enrollment in UNNJ, something along those lines. I don't have it in front of me, but it, that was the gist. Um, and it told these letters told these students that they either needed to seek reinstatement or leave the United States. After that, we ended up filing the lawsuit in November of 2016. At the time, I think, I think we had three or four plaintiffs, named plaintiffs at the time. Um, and we filed it in, we actually filed it first in the Eastern District of New York. At the time, we actually engaged in settlement nego- uh, discussions with the government. It was very boilerplate, I believe, from what I've seen. I was not at the firm at the time, but from what I've seen, very boilerplate um, settlement discussions. But when those failed, the government moved to transfer venue to New Jersey, the District of New Jersey, which is how we ended up in the District of New Jersey. Why did they think that the? Why do they think that they'd have a better venue in Jersey? In the Eastern District of New York. And isn't not, the Eastern District of New York, New Jersey? That was <laughs> don't, t- don't tell, don't say that to Ira. I will not. Because Ira is a big Brooklyn, Brooklyn man, and that's the Eastern District of New York. <laughs> it's pretty much Jay-Z. What pretty is, much. We, we haven't, what is that, what is the case called? We actually haven't said it. It's not called UNNJ. Uh, it's Dong v. Johnson. So we're, we get transferred to third. We get, we get transferred to the, District of New Jersey, and then we win, and that's the end of it. It's game over. That's it. No, unfortunately, that's not what happened. We get transferred to the District of New Jersey. Then we essentially duke it out with the government for, I don't know, a year. They move to dismiss. We obviously fight the motions to dismiss, and at the same time, we're trying to seek discovery. So our, our quest to seek discovery in the case started all the way back, you know, in 2017, I believe. And so we were fighting those two things. Um, and then lo and behold, the district court ends up granting the government's motion to dismiss. Pretty much jurisdictional grounds, right? Yes. 
It was essentially because the court found that there was no final agency action under the APA. We uh, appealed to the Third Circuit, went all the way up, did oral arguments, and the Third Circuit ruled in our favor and reversed and remanded it back to the district court in, it was literally a month before I got to the firm. It, this was my first big case at the firm. You know, the, they get remanded, but it's just jurisdictional. It's wonky. I mean, the substance of this case hasn't been decided at all, right? Before we get to it, though, there's an interesting footnote in that Third Circuit decision. Wasn't there, there was some concession by the government, something happened that the Third Circuit wasn't so happy about. Am I misremembering? You're not, Kevin. It was it was pretty funny, actually. So the what happened is, uh, at oral argument, uh, the government said, uh, told all of the judges, look, guys, you know, we don't really think the students here were vic- were at fault. We view them as victims, something to that effect. And, you know, the panel seemed pretty happy about that. They were like, oh, okay, the government is conceding they're wrong. Maybe this case will just kind of go away without us having to rule on it. If the government's willing to just correct all of their immigration files, maybe that maybe this we don't need to decide these, these tough jurisdictional issues. A couple of weeks after oral argument, the U.S. Attorney's Office files a letter with the Third Circuit saying, um, you know, about that uh, statement <laughs> at oral argument, uh, actually, we view them all as, as fraudsters. <laughs> they didn't say all. They said, we view many of them as fraudsters, the students, uh, because we thought we, we think that they knew about the fact that UNNJ was just not a legitimate school. And the Third Circuit basically flipped out in their opinion at the government. They said, you know, they've they changed their they 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 claim to be clarifying their position, but in fact, that it was a complete 180 about face. Uh, I think, without knowing the the mental workings of the Third Circuit judges, I'm sure it didn't help the government's case that they they flip flop like that. So why didn't this thing? Why don't we go to trial? Why did we settle? How did it settle? How did that all happen? And two part question. Did we get UNNJ gear as part of the settlement agreement? (laughs) So that's the one provision we didn't, we weren't able to get in. Did um, you seek? Did you seek? Well, that's a confidential settlement. You're asking me to divulge confidential (laughs) settlement negotiations here, Kevin. You should know that's not proper. That's BS. (laughs) I want a hat. I don't know if there were hats. There were t-shirts. Oh, come on. Yeah. You said you've got the photo. Definitely have a photo of a t-shirt. So why, I mean, why settle if you're the U.S. government? I mean, it's not, it's a hard case. All all the, most, most of the cases we have are hard. And I guess all the Third Circuit said was that the district court had authority to actually do the case. What happened? Well, I can tell you the procedurally what happened, but that's not Please. really what you're asking. I don't think. Yeah, well, you know, I get as much <laughs> out of you as I can. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, um, it, it basically, it went back to the district court. We continued to fight over discovery. The government filed motions to dismiss uh, most of the claims in the case. And then then there was an election in 2020, as many people will remember, or perhaps many people have repressed that memory. Uh, And there was a new administration that came in. And in February, lo and behold, in February 2021, uh, settlement negotiations restart. And nine months later, we get a preliminary settlement agreement on paper signed. And we start going through the, the process to get the, the settlement finalized, which just happened, as you said, Kevin, yesterday. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think that what Ed said is probably right. I think, you know, another reason maybe, you know, when, when we first brought the case, we only sued 
you know, the, the director of ICE, the director of USCIS and the secretary of DHS. But by the time we got back to the district court after the third circuit remanded, we then added several defendants. We added the department of state. We added the department of education. We added the United States of America. We added more plaintiffs. We added more facts. I mean, at that point we had had this case for, you know, four years, we've had learned a lot more (laughs) in that time. So we added a a lot more facts. Um, And I think it was also kind of clear that we weren't going down without a fight. I guess we fought valiantly through the motions to dismiss we were not giving up on trying to get discovery. <laughs> That's a lot of discovery. That's a lot of U.S. government entities. And again, just to be clear, because we've talked about presidential administrations and Ed, you said it, but this all starts under the Obama administration. So really, it goes through two administrations and really right. three if we're talking about settlements. So it really, it's not so much about administrations. It's about mm-hmm. what tactics is ICE going to do to try to root out student visa fraud? What is right. acceptable, what's not. Right. And and to be clear, what they did in this case was, was outrageous. I mean, there's no way around that. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention about the way they structured it is they really made it, even for an immigration attorney or, or an official at a legitimate school, they made it look like they were following the regulations because the regulations on curricular practical training, which is, it's that's that's the form of practical training or work study that people do while they're in, while they're enrolled in an academic program the regulations allow people to work on cpt curricular practical training at the start of their program even before they begin classes as long as the school approves it and so if you were uh, an immigration lawyer you know asked by a client look i've i've been admitted to the school they're saying i'm allowed to work for this company on curricular practical training it's in my area of study is this allowed? You pull up the regulations, your answer would be yes, it is allowed. And, and so on the face of it, you think, well, how could you possibly think that this was legitimate if you're a student enrolled in a school that didn't offer classes? On the other hand, if you have a problem with that, take it up with whoever wrote the regulations on F1 status because they allow it. So I think once you'd start digging into the case, and maybe this is what happened, we're speculating here, but when you really dig into the regulations on F1 status and the way they structured everything at the school, you start to see that these students were really victimized by our own government. And, you know, that had to have played a part in the decision to settle it rather than fight it. And so how were these various plaintiffs and, I mean, class members affected? I mean, obviously they're affected in losing money, getting these denials, these terminations of their student status, but over like six years, right? Since the termination letters went out, what kind of things have happened to these foreign students? Just to paint a picture for everybody who's listening. Well, the circumstances that these students have been in over the last six years, there are you know over a thousand of them. So they've all experienced a wide range of consequences. That's, but essentially it all stems from everybody's enrollment in UNNJ. So when the government shut down UNNJ in April 2016. ICE picked up many of the students from where, wherever they were at, picked them up, brought them in, investigated them, issued them NTAs, and put them in removal proceedings. At least from what we've seen, the records we've seen from the class members we've uh, been in contact with, everybody who has been placed in removal proceedings, it seems, 
was charged under INA 237A1C for at least the NTA say they failed to maintain their non-immigrant status only right. by enrolling in UNNJ. And that's the thing. There are so many ways to remove a non-citizen that you don't actually have to duke out whether they committed fraud or not. It's sufficient that they thought that they were in a legitimate university, that they could extend their F1 status, but they are no longer in that. And so they are no longer in status. Right. So not everybody was placed in removal proceedings, but those who were, DHS used 237A1C to get them there. Some class members or some enrollees, when they found out about the school, they just got so scared. They just, they left. They left the United States right away. And for the most part, most of them have not been able to come back because when they try to come back, they go to their visa interviews. They try to um, get issued visas from whatever consulates or embassies abroad, and they are refused those visas under INA 212A6CI for having committed fraud or made material misrepresentations because they enrolled in UNNJ. Most of, not most of the time, but you know, some of these people were never even told why they were found to be inadmissible under 212A6CI, but there's just no other reason they would have been found inadmissible. And other people were told it was because of their UNNJ enrollment. They weren't told any other reason, no other specifics. And others stayed in the United States. They are either still in removal proceedings the um, immigration judges are waiting to see the outcome of this lawsuit. Some of them, their proceedings were terminated if they could convince the immigration judge that they um, were not inadmissible. They were victims of UNNJ. Some of them got a voluntary departure. Some of them you know, stayed in the United States, got either a job or, or actually they married U.S. citizens tried to adjust. And some of them have actually been able to adjust, but I have never heard of someone being able to adjust without first having to get an I-601-212-I fraud waiver approved first. That's terrible. And I'm glad we settled. And so what is the settlement? I've, I'll be honest. I looked at it. I read it. I reviewed it. And it is confusing. You know, what's the gist of it? What are some of the better things that it protects these non-citizen class members, which quite frankly, to be clear, actually the class is all non-citizens who have attended UNNJ, who have enrolled in UNNJ. Is that correct? Enrolled. Right. Yeah, that's, enrolled. that's right. It, it, it's actually a bit broader uh, because we, after the preliminary settlement was signed, we got feedback from some of the class members that actually helped us to work with the government to clarify some of the provisions. So actually the class includes anyone who enrolled in UNNJ at any time for any length of time. Plus there were apparently at least one person, maybe more, who never enrolled in UNNJ, but was denied by the government for having enrolled. The government made a mistake. And so if, if anyone is in that boat, they're also covered by the settlement. There was at least two, at least two people. <laughs> They just drove by UNNJ on the interstate, <laughs> on the Jersey right. Turnpike. Right, right. Uh, how that? How I'm actually really curious how that happened. I almost wish we had fought the case so we could have gotten discovery on that question. Because how do you get denied for <laughs> enrolling in UNNJ yeah. when you never did? And then the third important category is the spouses and children of people who enrolled in UNNJ who got F2 
status by virtue of you know their spouse or parents' enrollment in UNNJ are also covered under the settlement. Uh, and what the settlement does, uh, it does a, a few important things. The first is the government can't deny anyone immigration benefits based on their enrollment in UNNJ. And you really should take a look at the definition of UNNJ enrollment in the settlement agreement because it's very broad. It's not just the enrollment itself, but it's also any matters, actions, material statements, or other information arising from, relating to, made from, or obtained through that enrollment. So basically anything that arose out of someone's enrollment in UNNJ is also covered as part of what UNNJ means and can't be used to deny immigration benefits. What does it mean to enroll in UNNJ? What is UNNJ enrollment? So UNNJ enrollment, it's actually a defined term in the settlement agreement. And it means not only someone's initial enrollment in UNNJ, but basically anything arising from or relating to that enrollment uh, with some exceptions, basically. It, 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 that if the, the mere fact that something arose after someone's UNNJ enrollment is not part of UNNJ enrollment. So for example, you enroll in UNNJ and you claim that because you did that, you suffer, you became uh, distressed and you committed a crime as a result, that's not going to be classified as arising from UNNJ enrollment. But it's anything that's- the argument. Uh, <laughs> uh, for all you creative uh, practitioners out there, that probably is <laughs> shut down by the, by the agreement. But it is a very broad definition. And if you have clients that are uh, you know, covered by the settlement, I'd encourage you to read the definition. Uh, so it, so there, that's probably the most significant provision. No, no denials of immigration benefits based on UNNJ enrollment. But practically uh, speaking, they sign up with the university, the fake university, they pay their fees, they put it into the CVIS system that they are attending UNNJ, that they are enrolled in UNNJ. Right. And that allows them to keep their student status, the fact that they are enrolled in UNNJ. Right. Exactly. So all of that is covered by the settlement agreement. You are not going to be penalized for getting student status, extending student status, simply because you were enrolled in UNNJ. Right. That, 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 that's right. There is. So the settlement actually addresses specifically the failure to maintain lawful status and the, the fraud ground. Uh, and there are a very narrow class of circumstances in which someone can be still be held to inadmissible or deportable based on someone's UNNJ enrollment. And that's listed in the agreement. But basically, the highlights are if you made an affirmative misrepresentation. Uh, to a government government official about graduating from UNNJ, that they're going to be able to use that against you. If a class member signed a written statement asserting that they attended classes, that will generally can be used against them unless the documents that they signed were created by UNNJ. So as part of the operation, and this is absolutely insane. It's incredible. They, yeah. they uh, pe people, what happened is people would uh, file other applications with USCIS. So like, let's say a change of status, they got sponsored by an employer or whatever. And they, they would, USCIS would issue them RFEs to say, hey, prove to me you actually went to UNNJ. And so then they would go back to their brokers and say, well, you know, I, I got this RFE from USCIS. I need to give them something to show that I enrolled. And the brokers then worked with the fake UNNJ Brunetti people that were actually ICE officials and they prepared attendance sheets for the class members to submit to USCIS. 
not just attendance sheets, parking passes. They gave them these fake documents to submit uh, and had them sign in some cases to say, hey, I attended class between these, between these, on these dates and these times. And they submitted those to USCIS. Those documents cannot be used against the class members under the settlement agreement because they were created by UNNJ. But other one, you know, someone who just writes under, uh, you know, a written statement that they attended classes without being goaded on by the government, that can be used against them. The other categories are, uh, you know, stuff that's not related to UNNJ, obviously, is not going to be covered. You know, for example, if you lie about your marital status or something like that. Um, and then the last category is people that engaged in what's defined, what's called broker conduct under the agreement. And it's, that's defined in the agreement. But basically, if you got a, a monetary benefit from UNNJ for recruiting other people and you knew UNNJ wasn't a, a bona fide school and that it wasn't in compliance with the law, then you can also be found inadmissible uh, or deportable under those grounds. So there, there are pretty narrow exceptions, but there are a few circumstances people should be aware of that, that are kind of carve-outs from, from some of the benefits in the settlement. What if you went to UNNJ and you've been out of status living in the United States now for five years with no status because you were kicked out of UNNJ? Is that person removable? Ah, that's it. That's another one of the big benefits of the settlement. Uh, the settlement puts everyone back into lawful status from the time that they enrolled in UNNJ through a specific date after in, in the future. And it, it depends on the person's immigration circumstances, but it's at least 180 days from uh, May 2nd. So no one will be considered out of, out of lawful status. No one will have be considered to have accrued unlawful presence for that time period defined in the settlement. So that should mean that many people that are eligible for adjustment of status uh, or changes of status that wouldn't otherwise be eligible for failure to maintain lawful status or you know, accrual of unlawful presence, all of those people are now eligible for those immigration benefits. That's a big deal. What if they have some of those fraud grounds? What if they did affirmatively sign documents not created by ICE to say that they attended classes? Are they still put back into status and then there can be a fraud finding against them or are they not even put back into status? No, they are put back into status. Those exceptions that I talked about, the only provision they affect is whether someone can be found inadmissible or deportable under those two INA grounds that we, we talked about, the fraud and then the failure to maintain lawful status grounds. But there would still need to be an affirmative case-specific finding in, in those cases. And the settlement requires the government to give the class member the evidence that they have, even in cases of visas. So this is important. So if you apply for a visa abroad and you get denied based on something that's UNNJ related, normally the State Department doesn't have to give you anything. They just have to check a box, basically. But in, if it's UNNJ related, even the State Department has to provide you the underlying evidence and give you a chance to rebut it. I believe it when I see it. And, and that's, that's before they deny it or refuse it. Like they can't refuse it and then say, this is why here's all the evidence. They actually have to give you all the evidence and give you a chance to rebut it, then deny it or not. But they can't just place you, you know, in the administrative processing loophole for the rest of your life. That's huge. And that's important for attorneys to know and be candid. We're not going to be able to go through this whole settlement agreement, nor should we yeah. <laughs> on this podcast. I'm going to post it in the show notes of the episode. It's on the Kurzban website. We have an entire 
page dedicated to the UNNJ case. But how else can prospective class members reach you guys, attorneys who have questions about their client? Pretty much for the next 20 years, you know, with immigration, things never go away. There's always something <laughs> lurking. How can, how can people reach you guys or, or anything about this case? Well, first, the, the best way to make sure you're staying updated on the case and getting updated quickly and getting any resources that we are working on and will post is to go to our website. Like Kevin just said, we have a dedicated page on our KKTP website. It's dedicated to the UNNJ class action. If there are any updates or if there are any helpful resources, they will all be posted there. It's um, kktplaw.com forward slash UNNJ class action. That's the first place I would say to go look. Um, If you would like to contact us specifically, if you have any settlement related questions, we have a dedicated email address. That's the second best way to reach us. It's unnjclassaction at kktplaw.com. You can email that email address. Make sure you give us your name, question, best way to contact you, and we will respond to you you as soon as we can. And I'll also put Elizabeth's personal email and work email directly in the show notes. And her cell phone number. That That will be the end of me. You will never see me again. <laughs> now, congratulations, guys. I mean, this is the end of a huge fight. And I mean, Ed, you've been with it the whole time. And Liz, you've been with it through some of the biggest times. It's a whole fight for the whole firm and Ira and everybody else not on this and attorneys that have moved on. What do you guys, what, what are your final thoughts about this big fight? Whether it's how the case went down, the substance of it, just what are you guys thinking? It's literally the day after it's over. <laughs> Well, first, I would say it's not over. (laughs) It's never over. It's never over. We, myself, Ed and Ira, have all been appointed as class counsel. So we are still going to be working hard, making sure, you know, that we um, are available for questions from class members, but also um, making sure that the government is complying with the settlement. And if not, we will bring it to the court if we need to, to enforce it. So it's not over, <laughs> but I think the, the, the big fight is over. Yes. <laughs> How do you feel is having gone through this whole big fight? I said this a bit earlier, but this was the first big case that I was assigned to at the firm. It was the first assignment I had on my desk. When I walked in, I started with the firm September, 2019. That was a little less than a month after the Third Circuit reversed and remanded. And so it was getting ramped back up. Um, And now it's May 2022. And I have personally learned so much just from working on this case. I don't know if I would have ever gotten this experience somewhere else. So personally, it's very cool, very rewarding to have seen this whole process on a class-wide how it's affecting real people. It's honestly, I sort of can't believe we're, we're here. <laughs> it really felt when we were going through the motions to dismiss, when we were going through the fights for discovery, but last year when it, we were going through the settlement discussions, I don't know if we ever really thought we would be here. <laughs> it, like, I don't know if we really 
could see that we were we were going to actually get a settlement at the end. Yeah, and just to echo what Liz said, I mean, this this working on this kind of case, uh, any any case really, but it, it reminds you of sort of the privilege that we have as lawyers to be able to make a difference in people's lives. And, uh, you know, it, especially, it seems especially strange for me being in Japan, you know, I'm sitting at a desk behind my computer and, you know, filing things electronically and you can feel a bit removed from the whole process, but when something like this happens and you're able to get good results for one client or a thousand plus clients, it's, it's a privilege, uh, to be, to be able to do this kind of work. A lot of times in the day to day, you know, you get frustrated by little things, but <laughs> You know, it's a reminder of of the importance of, of of this kind of work and and the ability that all of us as immigration lawyers have to really make a difference in people's lives. I think also just one more thing. It's talking about you know the ability to make a difference in people's lives and also sort of feeling removed sometimes. You sort of forget what you're doing when you're in the the thick of it. But sometimes you know you read on a piece of paper and you say it out loud that there are a thousand non citizens who were enrolled in UNNJ at some point. And that's a huge number, but you don't really like think about it. But then something's happened and it reminds you, obviously, the most recent thing was yesterday at the hearing, there were pages and pages of people <laughs> on the Zoom attending the hearing. When it first started, I was going through and I you know, had to go through at least like four times for how many people were attending it. You know, when you speak to class members, either on the phone or um, on a Zoom, it, it's times like that when you really are reminded the impact that this has. And the privilege that we have to be on this side of it. You guys are going to make me tear up. It's <laughs> very well put. They're not just records of proceedings. They're not just papers. They're not just documents. They're not just CVS forms. I mean, they're real people. So that's a wonderful way to end the episode. So, but I do have one final question, and that is where is Stephen Brunetti, PhD, at this very moment? <laughs> Go. I think we Where should start he? we should start a whole podcast just about that. Where could he be? What is his yes. PhD in? Was it in education? Nobody knows. Nobody. This knows. could be a whole podcast. Let's do a spin-off. That's you. You're on it, Liz. You've got the mic already. You've got three episodes <laughs> worth of practice. Steve Brunetti PhD with Elizabeth Montano. It'll get at least one listen. At least one and it'll be my mom. <laughs> We're in three different time zones. I'm in San Diego. Liz, you're in Miami. Ed, you're in Japan. So good night, Liz. Good morning, Ed. And I'm going to go eat dinner. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. So there you have it. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, 
email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.